primary care knowledge boost, common throat problems in general practice. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, today we're talking to the ear, nose and throat consultant, Ms. Sadie Kawaja, about common throat problems that we encounter in general practice. Yes, it's a lot of information in quite a short space of time, but she covers it so well. Um, we talk through um, right at the beginning um, what the red flags are for throat problems, um, which is quite nice to get out of the way. Um, and then we go on to um, take three anonymous and theoretical cases um, to cover the common problems that we see in general practice, which are a feeling of pain on swallowing, um, a feeling of a lump in the throat and um, unexplained hoarseness. Um, we are back at the end of the episode to share our learning points, um, of which there are many. So um, we hope you find this as useful as we did. Super. Hi, everyone. So my name is Sadie Kwaja. I'm an ear, nose and throat consultant based at the Manchester Foundation Trust. And I've been a consultant for, oh gosh, about just coming up to 11 years. In ENT, we do subspecialize. So the areas I like uh, specifically are voices. So I'm quite keen to hear voices uh, and swallowing problems. And then rhinology, so noses and sinuses and how noses work and function. So those are kind of referrals I get. Brilliant. Um, so we thought we'd um, headline at the start by asking you what kind of common conditions do you normally see coming through from primary care being referred in? Um, I think we see a lot. Um, it, it ranges from kind of, yeah, so in my world, it's voice problems, uh, particularly related to work, um, post-infections that have just not settled down. And then swallowing is actually a huge gamut of a subject matter because it crosses obviously gastroenterology as well as neurology as well as ENT and then falls into the world of community with speech therapy so it, it crosses a lot of boundaries but what we run is a kind of a diagnostic hub for our kind of voice and swallowing center uh, so yeah it, I'll say dysphagia but you know that is a gamut to cover a huge range of problems with the swallow and so we do yeah we assess that in the clinic and, and advise on the best treatments for it. Mm. So yeah like you say swallowing is a huge topic um, we'll kind of focus around different presentations but before we do start with that um, can you talk us through red flags around um, anything that we're we're approaching anything to do with throat problems? So red flag symptoms, they are on the two-week cancer protocol guidelines. And, and on there, from the throat point of view, it, there's two. There's a couple. There's one that says um, any voice problem. Now, it, previously, they normally it says uh, anything lasting longer than six weeks is the criteria. But it used to be uh, any person, but they have changed it to over 45. What we were finding that is a lot of us will have voice problems and then if you keep referring for that it's a huge group so in the criteria it's over 45 again there is caveats to that so if somebody's a smoker drinker you can drop that number down and it's persistent is the word I really would look to hear or read so it's a persistent voice problem not a one that comes and goes comes and goes is more a not, not to say it's not a problem, but it's not going to be, you know, making me worried. It means that I need to see it probably if it's not settling down. But ones that you need to refer on a two-week cancer protocol is a persistent, progressive voice problem. Now, do remember 
that if there's a voice problem, always think about breathing problems and um, swallowing because all three run together. So the big thing I always teach to juniors is always what we call the triad, voice, airway and swallowing. So ask all three and it actually helps you work together to where is it a problem that's persistent and a problem that needs to be assessed or is this going to be something that is you know a virus that will improve the other uh, symptoms with the throat um specifically are dysphagia as we've already said again dysphagia has to be persistent and progressive to make it sound sinister and i think those if you just take that history or take you know get get the detail in the history and then severity. I mean, that's the other thing about dysphagia. If they're not eating or can't eat, they're going to lose weight. So you need to know about weight loss. So I'm talking about weight loss where, you know, the trousers don't fit or things are falling off in a, a reasonable time period. I'm not talking about two-year history of weight loss. I'm talking about, you know, a three- to six-month history or something. So, you know, if somebody's got dysphagia and it's progressive, you lose weight very quickly, you know, if it's going to be severe. Um, so, yeah, so the, those are the common throat cancer diagnoses that we worry about. Um, just a couple other ones I would think about is referred ear pain. Um, and that is pain that they present with in ear pain with the normal ear looking, you know, no problems with their ears. So remember always that's the glossopharyngeal nerve tickling in the throat in the oropharynx so what we're looking for in those cases is tonsils or back of the tongue back of the tongue is very difficult if somebody's got a very you know strong gag you may not necessarily see asymmetry there but that's what we're looking for we're comparing one side to the other but it's worth in those people just put your hands on them and feel the neck sometimes it's very difficult to see the difference between you know one side to the other and you just want to feel the glands in the neck uh, so that's cervical lymphadenopathy or asymmetry on one side, particularly in the corner, right where the angle of the jaw is. Get your finger in there or two and see if you can feel uh, the, it's the jugular digastric lymph nodes, the deep node on both sides. In most of us, we will feel it. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, um, it's when you're looking for asymmetry, so one's bigger than the other. And most nodes in our neck, we, 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 uh, we're usually happy if it's a, less than a centimetre or around the centimetre and it's mobile. So anything bigger than a centimetre, it's fixed or hard or craggy or is globular, it's like a squishy feeling or a ball. You're either thinking of malignancy in a kind of cancer way as an SEC or you're thinking of lymphomas yeah. on the other side. But remember, with lymphomas, you're going to have other histories. You've got to look for your B symptoms. So that usually helps. And the age groups are pretty specific as well. Lymphomas generally will present in the lowest bit of the neck. Uh, so they usually present slightly differently. SECs present usually higher up. For example, if you're only feeling and you feel the neck lymph lymphadenopathy, you do have to start thinking where is it starting off from because SECs are usually either in the head and neck area in the skin Always remember skin because I think people always try to think about, you know, oh, what well, is from the tonsil or the oropharynx, but we we do pick up SECs or, you know, something removed more than a couple of years ago, even five, and it presents late. And then very, very rarely you get the malignancies are unknown origin, so we never find where it came from. And also occasionally from other specialties, so 
obviously we get referrals from respiratory, occasionally, occasionally breast, but I have to say that's pretty rare. Mm. So, yeah, I think that those are the key kind of cancer symptoms uh, and signs I'd be looking for. Neck lumps is slightly different. I mean, it's, it's we have pretty fixed uh, kind of pathways for those. So when we're talking about neck lumps, we're really only thinking about thyroids, cervical lymphadenopathy that we've already just covered, parotid lumps. I suppose those are your three. Parotid but you would refer those in because it's not well actually some practices generally uh, do have the capability of doing ultrasound but it's better probably for us to do it because then we have a kind of diagnostic pathways because at the moment what we'd like to do is if it's a lump we want to take a sample and we'd like to do that all at once uh, rather than you know it's nice to get the ultrasound done if if there's nothing else you know it's just benign thing that's great but when it's malignant it just sometimes we end up repeating the ultrasound and you just think if we ever just got them in the beginning you know quicker Mm. it would have saved you the hassle of having to do the ultrasound and everything else stop shop yeah so i think if you've got a very high suspicion just get them to us asap that's such a good overview. Thank you for covering that so so well because we we love getting the kind of the worrisome things out of the way and kind of thinking about them well. Mm. Um, it's interesting with the swallowing difficulties because I was looking at the nice guidelines for throat problems or neck problems, and it didn't massively mention the swallowing issues. Is it above the sternal notch? I think was the thing we were always taught that if a, if a swallowing difficulty is above the sternal notch, then it's ENT, two-week weight. And if it's below the sternal notch, it's gastro. It doesn't really exist because the problem is these are artificial boundaries. It's human. It, we put them in purely because it's just not possible for us uh, to be able to look after the whole human and, and test all in one department. So we kind of make artificial boundaries uh, in that sense. And we struggle actually uh, in in kind of secondary care about who does it fall to, and I think, in a sense, again I'd say the same thing. Just get it into us if you're suspicious. Whether you send it to gastro, or send it to us. What happens is that they'll bounce it to us, and we'll bounce it to them. Um, things have moved along, and this is just the other thing I was talking about earlier about technology. And you know, um, we so again I think within the next couple of years we all find that uh, I scope in my clinic for my dysphagia patients from from the nose down to the stomach all right okay now that's because it's all in one the throat symptoms that they have for the dysphagia I would say a lot of the time is because of the gullet and the stomach now it may be that you know that's unique to my practice it's not necessarily every place i think we're moving towards that but i wouldn't say it's nearly every ent department so you may feel it's better just to send it to gastro and gastro will actually are moving again definitely in the mft patch have moved to scoping all their gastro cases from the nose all the way down to the lip it's tolerated better. If you ever looked at what the size of a gastro, I don't know if you guys have ever had a gastroscopy, but it, you know, it's a good size one. Yeah. And actually my scope is about the 10th of the size of what they would put in. Um, I mean, I'm not saying you're not going to be discomfort or anything, yeah. but on a relative basis, I think that's where dysphagia diagnostics has come moved along uh, to being careful though when you say it's all about scoping because I think we sometimes get led into over investigating with the wrong investigation 
if you think about what the gullet is, it's a it's a living structure that is constantly moving, and you know it's got motility in it. And by just looking with a gastroscope, you're only looking at it as a picture at one point at the day you did it. So you kind of have to really think about the gullet in in a kind of functional way, and that means you need to look at it from a what we do is called barium swallows. Uh, so asking the patient to eat and drink and watch how the food goes down. I wish I could show you those. I wish I could tell your audience. How it's If you ever get the opportunity, do have a look at a, a video swallow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very educational. It, it, it just summarizes the complexity of the swallow. That's from, you know, from the mouth down to the gullet opening, but then from the gullet all the way into the stomach and beyond. It, a lot of the swallowing problems I pick up or I deal with, a lot of it is age-related. Uh, and I'm going to start on my little bandwagon now, actually, because <laughs> I'm quite passionate <laughs> about dysphagia, partly because I think it's underrated. Uh, I think the problem is is that uh, we all will have dysphagia mm-hmm. at some point as we get older um, and the consequences and if you think about all the patients you have in the community that you guys have to look after in the nursing homes, uh, your elderly patients, all getting what they used to, what they all call community chest infection. Actually, what it is is that a lot of the patients are having what we call pre-morbid dysphagia. So symptoms of dysphagia, but then or aspiration, they will cough or you know we all do a little cough when the food goes down the wrong way. But they get to the point where they're coughing or they're silently aspirating. And actually, the only way you're picking it up is with chest infections. If, if there's one thing I would love you guys to do is probably ha- have that community. Um, I'm assuming you have got it, the, you know, community speech therapist yeah, and really get your patients assessed by them. I'm sure they do, actually. So I'm not probably saying anything new. Um Particularly uh, think about it if you're having to be called for uh, kind of patients in the nursing homes or even at home and they're getting chest infections. Just think about it. What's their swallow like? Are they coughing and, and, and choking on their tablets or sticking? There's a nice um, EAT10 score I would recommend. So if you just Google EAT as in E-A-T-10, it's scored out of 10. But anything above three is suggestive or something that needs investigating shall we say or referral to a speech therapist that's really useful thank you yeah to make that link quicker than we might yeah um so we thought we'd test you with some cases just to kind of Mm. um just to see see how you'd tackle different presentations that we might see in general practice um, so we've got a couple of anonymous um, cases. So for, first of all, it's 50-year-old Michael. Um, so he came into the practice to see us and he was complaining of pain when he was swallowing. Um, so he his only past medical history is of a body mass index of 29, so he'd classed as uh, obese. And he's had on and off use of omeprazole for reflux symptoms throughout the past couple of years. He's got no nasal or sinus symptoms and he doesn't take any regular medications. So where would you go with that case? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, just one step. And I need a little bit more information. Probably um, things that I would also add on is just what their job is, if he's working. Um, because 
one of the things I think we have to recognize is lifestyle uh, of how we eat, uh, actually. And you find um, where, especially if he's a night worker, we're very erratic with our eating. We, we, we all will have some element of dyspepsia, whether we want to admit it or not. <laughs> I think a lot of patients go, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. So I think there's a little bit of delving into occupation lifestyle. Um, and then I would move into kind of just a detail again, like I said at the beginning, when he's saying do differentiate between dysphagia, which is difficulty in swallowing, and what I said before, progressiveness and weight loss and everything. So I pigeonhole that to one side. If he says no to any of that, then I'll, I'm thinking, well, I'm not worrying about you. It doesn't mean that your symptoms aren't there. It's just they're not going to be things that I'm going to be referring to you urgently. So going back to pain. Now, this is an interesting thing. Now, to have pain, you've got to have pain fibers. And if you try and think about where your pain fibers are, where are we most sensitized? We are actually sensitized uh, a lot in the back of our mouth or in our mouth or in our oropharynx, so the, where the tonsils sit, um, particularly because there's a, there's a gag reflex there that has to sense uh, whatever you're putting in your mouth and then set, either decide to let it pass down <laughs> into the gullet or say, no, you're going out, so checking it out again. So it's highly innovated, and that's usually with the pharyngeal plexus that we have. As the food goes down into um, beginning of the gullet, so not quite into the gullet yet, so the voice box has moved out of the way. It's the the second part of the swallow has now is set into action. Um, there isn't the main driver down there is the vagal nerve, and the vagal nerve actually works on the cough reflex. So it's a different reflex. So. If it's going in the wrong way, it will set you off in a cough. It's not actually going to give you pain. And this is a funny bit, because when you actually ask the person, where is it, that pain, he will find it very difficult to put one finger on the spot. Yeah. Mm. So it's a very different history. Um, so first of all, we've taken out the kind of sinister bit of it. So what we want to know from the pain, is it actually pain? Because, you know, define what you mean by pain. Is it actually the word discomfort? Because what you'll find with a lot of them is that they can eat. Is it, if it was pain, why, why is he still eating? If it's discomfort, that's different. That means that there's something different or something feels different, but it's not stopping him eating and drinking. So... Then that's my second point. So the point being that it's, I suspect it's not painful. It's more of a discomfort. Now, when we come into discomfort and we talk about that kind of, uh, if he's pointing to that mid part of your neck, then you're talking about muscles. You're talking about muscle tensions. And muscle tension is a big thing in what we do a lot of. Because it's if you think of your larynx and the top end, well, talk about your tube, your, your swelling tube, they're all a bunch of muscles, all innovated to do a certain action. And th this is the best bit. You don't have to even think about it. It's done automatic. So it's done at your brainstem level, in your swallowing center, by your vagal nerve. And so what he's finding difficult to say is exactly what his actual feelings are. More than likely, he's complaining about some irritation in his throat which is setting off a muscle to be tighter or held tighter. So it's intention in there. 
Now, we get a lot of that affecting the voice, so you can get voice problems. So going on to the next questions, I would ask him about his voice. And what I said right at the beginning, always check about the air. So you're breathing, your voice, and you swallow. If his swallow is, sorry, if his swallowing's fine and his voice, as you talk to him, sounds good and he doesn't complain of any voice problems, we're now left with just an irritation because his airway is not telling you about any problems with his breathing. Now, throat irritation is very, very common. Who hasn't had a throat irritation? Mm. You know, you've had, and there's a long list of causes for throat irritation. So you're just having to work through that list. So how do I do it? I generally start from the top down. So I start with a nose. So I think, right, has he got a snotty nose? He's got allergy. Is he mouth breathing? Is he sending gunk down the throat? Is that irritating his throat? So you just need to go through that nose nasal history to rule out, is it a nasal cause? Now, the, the biggest one I generally find, and you, it's just by looking at their appearances, so not to generalize, but if there's a short, fat neck, more than likely he's a snorer. Whether he admits it or not, usually you find the wife comes along or the partner and says, yeah. <laughs> now, I get the luxury of scoping him, and I can I can see the signs of that. You you guys will. You might be able to, with just looking at the back of the throat, you might see kind of the uvula looks a little bit boggy or it looks a little bit red and irritated. But it's quite hard, actually. I, I wouldn't say you'd be able to pick it up. But the features of, a, you know, the OSA kind of patient, you can definitely pick up. So the problem with mouth breathing, it dries the throat. Imagine having a cold. Now, we all of us had a cold and we, all of us know how harsh our throat is. Now, imagine having that throat feeling all the time. That's the feeling, again, going back to that point of saying, is it painful? It's not painful. It's just uncomfortable. That's really what they're trying to say to you. I've got an uncomfortable throat. I don't know why. And it's not getting any better. Can I have some antibiotics is usually the question to you guys, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, okay, most of it is irritation. It will either be a dry throat secondary to a nasal problem or it will be reflux. So don't forget to ask about the lifestyle and reflux history, um, particularly at night, but it can be during the day. And then hydration is what you need to do. Get them as hydrated as possible, steaming them, getting them to steam as much as they can, drink plenty of fluids. And, you know, if it's viral, so there's an outside chance it's viral, well, most viruses last three to five days, don't they? You've got a window of opportunity to watch, to sort the lifestyle out, give them the kind of reassurance that it's, they've not said anything that suggests, you know, sinister. That's sometimes quite a lot of what they want. And then have a feel of the neck. And they usually it's muscle tension that they usually talk about. Because what happens is that most of them, it's the case of it's not stopping them going to work generally. So what it is, is that they push through it. And sometimes you want it, them to actually just rest mm. the voice and the throat to, uh, and lubricate and hydrate. Because they don't, they just carry on with the lifestyle they've got. It just prolongs into weeks, into weeks, into months. And then they come at your door and saying, well, this is not getting any better. So, you, so, you know, that's how you can make something relatively simple into kind of a chronic nature to it. Now, obviously, if there's a nasal problem, you're going to get stuck because if it's a deviated septum or something else, then you're going to end up having to get us to see it. Um, or if it's rhinitis, obviously, you guys can treat that um, with nasal sprays. 
So it depends where it falls, but that's probably how I work it. That's fantastic. Thank you. That was such a nice approach. That's great. Um, yeah, well, it, most things you can work on that kind of framework. Take out anything that's malignant and then work through. And I think my that's my spiel, shall I say. And it's, it's developed over a 10-year history, well, longer than that, actually, probably 20-year history. But I think partly because it was never really taught to me, so I've had to work it out myself. So there, there's a pearl for your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put it to the test with the next kiss, if that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is another quite common um, presentation in general practice. Um, but we have um, 22-year-old Della, and she has got um, around about a month's history of a sensation of a lump in her throat. Um, and she has a past medical history of anxiety and takes the mm-hmm. telepram for that. Um, she smokes five cigarettes a day. Um, an examination of the mouth and the throat um, show no abnormalities at all. Um, so what would you be thinking here and what other questions would you want to ask examination, etc.? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does fall into a similar pattern to the one we've just done. Just slight, slight um, nuances, shall I say. So first of all, I'd question lump in the throat. Is that her words or is that the words that, you know, uh, who... So you've got to get the detail from the patient. And then again, it comes back to the same problem. They find it very hard to explain it. So you've got to then just, when when that happens, when when they become very vague, it's very hard because you, you end up start feeding them words and you really don't know actually, is that what they mean? I mean, they're very good at saying that, no, no, I don't mean that. Mm-hmm. But then the, they find it very hard to explain what it is. So in those cases where, where you find a very, I wouldn't say they're poor historians, but just difficult to take the history. Go back to your red flags, um, rule out the dysphagia element of it. So are they eating and drinking? And is it the case? Now, sometimes they'll say something like, oh, I can eat and drink, but sometimes it gets stuck. So you just need to differentiate here two slight nuances. One is, is the food sticking or is the food going down the wrong way? They're completely different things, but they, they do suggest that there's some element of, it may not necessarily be sinister pathology, but some pathology, shall I say. So in this case, Della, the interesting things about Della's history is, as you've pointed out, is the anxiety element. How much is that playing a part in it? So you need to have to dig a bit of the history, really. Um, when's this all started? What was the issue? Was there an issue? Wherever there's muscle, there's tension. Wherever there's tension, it's driven by neural kind of networks. Wherever there's neural networks, you can your brain can overpower it. Or you, your brain can make it sense more than it should be, if that makes sense. Um, lumps. So, yeah, so you've got to um, differentiate lump feeling, dysphagia, and then heightened anxiety and sensation. So she may be feeling more sensation than the average person due to her kind of anxiety levels. So you've got to just separate those three elements out. Let's assume there's no true dysphagia, so we're not worrying about her. Let's assume that her swallow in principle is fine, so she's not choking, she's not giving you any kind of food sticking. That kind of history comes from a slightly older population, so that's where you're talking about what I call desensate or insensate over time. I'm just going to divert for a second to say, as much as we lose our vision with age and our hearing, 
and our smell, we lose our sensation. And now, now sensation as we speak on the fingers and stuff, but similarly on the inside of our throats as well. And that's where the problem comes with dysphagia and, and um, choking and so forth. So we're not expecting that in this person. Um, I'm going to park again dysphagia for the moment because it brings in lots of other questions about the lower gut and the mid gut and so forth, which are relevant if um, she was complaining of food sticking or food going down uh, and then giving spasms in a gullet and things like that. Any of those gullet symptoms, you do need to refer them on to gastro because it's not something I would necessarily be able to deal with and it's probably best for them. If we assume dysphagia is, uh, there isn't any problems with dysphagia, then we're assuming this is more a heightened sensation. Uh, just a couple of things to check, really. Um, just make sure you when they feel, they're saying lump feeling in the throat, they're not talking about lumps on the outside of the throat need to think about and feel the neck make sure especially if she's anxious you've done a thyroid function test and you felt the neck to make sure there's no enlarged thyroid sometimes you can get an enlarged thyroid which then isn't visible on it's so it takes up the space in front of your larynx but when it grows it can grow downwards uh, all around the side and so you may not necessarily feel the thyroid as a lump on the surface as in when you put your fingers on there but sometimes you do occasionally get the growth is further down. And so I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, no, I can't feel a thyroid, that's it. This is one of those where you have got the opportunity if you've got the availability oxygen to consider it. If they're pointing to the area of where the thyroid sits, that's the main thing you need to get from the history and examine them as well from that point of view. Um, I think those are probably the avenues I'd go down. Yeah, so it'd be either gastro if they're gastric symptoms, thyroid lump if it's uh, anxiety and it's something palpable and then dysphagia specifically then you'd really want to make sure it's gastro for that as well it's interesting with the uh, there's um gp guidelines that came out about the sensation of a lump in the throat with globus um and they were talking about that we think there's probably more silent reflux involved than we might have otherwise so like you're saying with some of the gastro symptoms so that I was just thinking with Della I'd written it as a kind of like oh you know she's taking citalopram she might have a little bit more acid in her tummy as well and then oh she but also she's anxious and she so I just th thought I'd throw all the differentials in no no that's that's great actually it, it does you're right as I said you know if there's gastric symptoms you're doing Okay, so the evidence isn't very strong. And so there's a there was a topic trial, which I think is about to be published, or it did get published finally, which we got involved with, which was to look at the role of PPIs in basic patients with global symptoms, basically. Yeah. And there was no evidence for it. Now, it doesn't mean some patients aren't having reflux symptoms, or refluxate, shall we say, rather than specifically as acid. You can get bile as well. And so another study just about to start is looking at Gaviscon advance or an alginate. So in sense that it covers both sides, the pepsin, it'll cover the pepsin element as well as the acid and any bile as well if it's coming that far up. Um, we'll see, I suppose, is the answer to the question of whether it's really useful or not. 
you can do trials and I don't have any problems. Sometimes I say to patients, I don't know if it will work. What you shouldn't do is leave it never ending. I think if you say to them, it's a trial and it's a six weeks and we're going to go high dose. So if it's going to work, it's going to work. If it's not, it's not. Yeah. If you kind of set the scene beforehand, then then it's, you know, sometimes they'll come back going, it really worked. And you're going, that's good. <laughs> you know. But um yeah, you put it in the context of why you're doing it, how you're doing, how long you're going to do it for, what you think the outcome is going to be, and what's your, you know, if it doesn't work, what else are you going to do? So, I, I, you know, in Della's case, you might say, you know, you've ruled out anything malignant, you think it's more gastric related. But as I said, anxiety stuff, just, you're right, it, it could be gastric or it could be neck numb. And is there any, if it um, does look like it is just that heightened sensation, PPI hasn't worked if we've tried it. Is there any management specifically that we can do in primary care for these patients? So there was a study looking at muscle tension, releasing muscle tension, because that's what it is. Um, And when I feel the neck and I feel tension throughout, I generally would say to patients, you know, if you've got access to neck massaging or, or getting somewhere where you can get some tension release, then do do that. I mean, be mindful actually it, it gets not to complicate people but I had one recently where it's you know the history was that she actually had uh, some previous cervical injury mm. and that's left her with a kind of holding tension more on one side than the other which then spread around to the anterior neck um, and that's where her kind of discomfort was coming from she was referred to ENT obviously because it was in the throat and the neck but she didn't have any red flag symptoms, no dysphagia symptoms. Uh, scope was normal. And, you know, when you felt the neck, it's where the tension was. So, yeah, so you can do, if, if everything else is ruled out, you can ask them to see if they can do some massaging or relaxations of the neck. So we have our last case. So 42-year-old Jared, um, he's had a three-week history of a ho- horse voice Initially, when it started, he felt like he had a cold, some carousal symptoms, but that recovered. And though he still feels a little bit run down, his his cold has settled. Um, He's got a past medical history of obstructive sleep apnea Mm. and type 1 diabetes. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, just going back to hoarseness, what did we say? We need it to be persistent and progressive, really, is what I'd be looking for. Um, again, go back to the triad to check about the swallowing, check about the airway. And then I would want to know a little bit more about smoking and alcohol history. Um, and so if it's a smoker um, and a persistent voice uh, change, then you need to send it to us. We just need to scope them. As an urgent suspected cancer referral. Yeah. If there was a non-smoker, it's less likely, particularly for cord level hoarseness. It's it has to be smoking for a while to get changes on the vocal cords. Uh, but, you know, genetics, you never know. So I think anything persistent, just always get it checked out. The other thing about his hoarseness, I think he, if the OSA, just going back to what we said earlier, he would be a dry throat. You just get the rest of that history. Uh, so it'll be kind of a chronic pharyngitis is probably what he's complaining about. So that's a dry, irritated throat because he's snoring most nights. And it will be a, a muscle tension dysphonia is most likely. Now, muscle tension dysphonia, the, the key things that are different compared to a malignant one. So malignant change on the voice, once it's changed, it's changed. It's not going back. It won't have a good day or a bad day. It's just bad. 
uh, rather than a muscle tension dysphonia, when they relax or they've rested the voice, it actually sounds back to normal, but then it quickly goes back into feeling hoarse again. Um, if it's a problem, particularly with him throat drying out overnight, you might find that in the morning it's very dry and harsh and husky until he starts lubricating, whether by drinking a cup of tea or a coffee or whatever, or steaming in the shower, and then it sounds a little bit better. And then he falls into kind of the voice sounds okay for a couple of hours. And then because it's starting to dry up again, it starts to start going squeezing. And what do we all like doing? We all love to talk. So what happens is that you push the voice out and it starts to squeak like that. So, And it's a lot of effort, actually. But it also puts a lot of strain on the voice box. And so you really you just need to crack that cycle because he's just going to keep going round and round and round. So you need to find what's causing the dry, if it's, you know, if it's the OSA. Did you say diabetic as well? Yes. Yeah, so you've got to just think about diabetes and infection risks and also hydration again with them, those patients. So there's a couple of, in that history, there's a couple of factors there, isn't it, that you've got to have to optimise. That's really useful. I'm just thinking of a couple of people. So good. Well, kind of using this as a bit of a platform um, now as we get towards the end, is there anything else that you'd want to share about throat problems with a primary care audience from your perspective? No, I think quite a lot of the things we've talked about today, I mean, I doubt anybody ever does teach. And so I think it's really helpful just to share those. Um, I do feel, I mean, as I said, I have the luxury of popping a camera in and so it gives me the final kind of seal of, yeah, am I, am I right or not? Yeah, um, but yeah, do think global. Do think holistic. I'm sure you know all this um, because I'll, t- I'll leave you with this thought. I mean, it's really um, a lot of it is about well-being and, and, and how you feel. A lot, you know, we in ENT, we kind of look at patients in a health and well-being way. We do have malignancy as part of our job, you know, as a head and neck cancers, but I generally separate those bits out. Now, 80, 90% of what we do is about well-being and patient care because what we're talking about, we're talking about your hearing so you can hear. and We're talking about kids, pediatric uh, care, which is all about sorts, you know, tonsils and, and grommets and ears problems, all so that you can use your senses. So we, we look at quality of life. I think if you put yourself in, in, in the patient's shoes and just think about how can I make their quality of life better? Uh, you, you'll find it's actually very simple stuff, you know, hydration, resting your voice appropriately, using the voice uh, or your throat safely. I think we live in such a fast world. We don't give ourselves the luxury to actually rest. Look after the voice. Um, I, we normally hand out a voice care sheet and it, it's worth, I can send it to you guys, but you could probably find it on most of the internet. We'll pinch as many resources as possible because we like to have a, a good list. Thank you so, so much for talking to us. That's been really useful. Yeah, it's great, actually. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, anytime. So, Lisa, that was amazing. That was an amazing talk. Um, what did you take away from it? Oh, there were so many different bits. There was so much information. Um, I liked the, um, I liked the structure of this chat, actually. I like that we covered the red flags right at the beginning. 
Yes. Um, and I think she had um, quite a nice way of looking at it because it can sometimes get a bit complicated um, when you start going into sinister symptoms. But I feel like I came away with a better understanding um, of what the red flags actually are um, and, and when to be worried. Um, and, and some other nice little bits as well where you're thinking, oh, let's think about derm problems. Let's think about this and lymphomas and how that all presents differently. But it just it made it a lot simpler in a way. <laughs> Yeah, I think when you're talking to experienced people about the red flags and they're drawing upon their experiences to describe some of the symptoms, I think that, um, yeah, for me, that it really helps it stick in my head a lot more, um, especially because, you know, you're examining necks quite a lot and it's it's quite good to go through a few other different nuances of the of the red flags rather than, you know, the quite brief guidelines that you might see um and then yeah her structures were amazing like really simple kind of straightforward structures like when we are thinking of anything to do with the throats we're thinking of the the triad the voice the airway the swallowing all together um and then also yeah I, i think just considering it as a sort of three specialty area um, was quite good as well because that helps your differentials as well doesn't it neuro gastro ent yep and then within ENT, thinking about ears, nose and throat and how they all actually can be linked together as well, which help differentials too. Um, yeah, because when she was talking about the referred ear yeah. pain for, um, for as a red flag, if you're thinking sort of looking at the tonsils and the back of the tongue, uh, looking for neck lumps. Yeah, that was yeah. really useful. Sorry, carry on. Sorry. No, um, even just um, even just thinking about the process of swallowing. Um, can help with differentials um, and how a lot can be related to muscle Um, but even just thinking about the layers thinking about it as a system thinking about where it can go wrong um, can help make you get down the right path Um, so yeah that that was just simple as well it's it's not revolutionary but it feels like it is (laughs) yeah it it is though in terms of the structure I totally agree like the fact that she was going through from top to bottom like starting at your nose but I think which case was it was the and this the pain on swallowing the discomfort and thinking about the nerves um, and that was so interesting about well the vagus nerve it's not not really pain fibers so that that can be cough but uh, you know is it actually the muscles i think the whole thing about where muscles sit in this whole yeah. the scenario is i hadn't i don't think i'd ever really factored them in at all so that was it was really interesting and then snoring osa yes. so you know it breathing through your mouth what did she call that term Oh, that was really good about um, either for people with OSA or who snore. Is it the chronic pharyngitis? Yeah, chronic pharyngitis, yeah. Oh, yeah, so good. And even just the the bits around management and, and even just the the theory of protecting your voice. Like I hadn't thought of that before mm-hmm. and how it's a, it's like a commodity and it's a thing to look after just like you look after um, other aspects of your health. You should protect your yeah. voice as well and look after it. And I hadn't really considered that before. Um, so that was an interesting take. Yeah, when she was talking about that, I definitely thought, thought of a few patients that um, that could be really helpful to consider. Um, I also really liked when she was talking about the chest infections um, in the elderly population, either in the nursing homes or at home. And some of them may well have an element of dysphagia. Um, and so considering that quicker and then trying to refer into the speech and language uh, community teams will be interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah thank you very much for listening everyone and we hope you found that really useful um, if you want to leave any comments feedback or anything you can do via the survey or on iTunes or our email addresses on our episode description as well as any of the links that we'll, we have around this topic 
Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.